Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. My name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor here at Old North, if you are visiting with us for the first time. And it is my privilege to open the scriptures together. So let's pray and ask for God's help, shall we, as we turn our attention to the word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together, to give to you and to receive from you. Our hearts, our wills, our worship, our adoration, and to receive from you the grace that you so generously give to us and the encouragement of your spirit and the transforming nature of your work. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your scriptures today, that you would continue to give generously to us as we explore who you are and what you do. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A mystery is something strange or unknown which has yet to be explained or understood. Something strange or unknown that has yet to be understood. And everybody loves a good mystery, unless, of course, you find yourself in the middle of it. Some mysteries are serious in nature and others are quite humorous. Take, for example, the mystery of traffic lanes. I mean, why is it that every time I change lanes in my car, it's that lane that slows down? That, I mean, that is a mystery. Or how about the mystery of those washing machines that we have in our houses? Almost all of us have one, I'm assuming, that you could put 10 perfectly matched pairs of socks in the washing machine but inevitably, by the time the load is done, you only pull out eight pairs and only six of them actually match. I mean, this is a mystery to me, and yet it continues to happen. It's been fun for Amy and I to get to know this area over the last month or so and to get to meet a number of people in the community. Of course, we've met a number of you. We've met our neighbors. And it's been slightly amusing to me uh, the nature of these conversations and how they seem to lead back very regularly to two distinct expressions of mystery. Number one, it's very common to ask somebody what they do for a living. Somebody asks me, Nick, great to meet you. What do you do for work? Well, I'm the new senior pastor at Old North Church, I say. <laughs> no. You are, you're way too young to be a pastor, is the common response. And then after a long pause, they sort of lean in a little bit close and say, how old are you anyway? <laughs> I know some of you have been asking that question. Word has reached my office of that. And so in the nature of full transparency, I will tell you that I am somewhere between the ages of 18 and 54. <laughs> we will leave it a mystery. The other common occurrence in conversation related to mystery that we have is with regard to moving here. Um, maybe the best example of this is about a month ago when I was getting my hair cut and a woman was asking me about life and had done the whole age thing already about pastors and churches and, and then said, well, where, where did you move here from? And this is repeated across the board in many conversations. And I said, well, we moved here from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Oh, she says, and you moved here? <laughs> and, I mean, so far we've 
liked the area quite a bit. And she said, wait, wait, you lived there and you moved here. To which I say, well, don't you like it here? And she says, well, yeah, it's okay. I said, well, what do you like to do for fun? Nothing. (laughs) There's nothing to do for fun. I mean, up to this point, Amy and I felt pretty good about moving here. I mean, it made sense to us. We seemed to like the people. But now, that's a little bit of a mystery. An unexplainable occurrence that is not commonly understood. Now, of course, there are bigger mysteries in life with much more serious consequences. Events that are confusing, suffering that doesn't seem to have any purpose, situations that seem like they're hopeless or beyond repair. And perhaps the biggest mystery of all, God And how a holy, just, righteous, perfect, loving, invisible God chooses to relate to an imperfect, sinful, rebellious people like us. This has been a mystery since sin has entered the world. And it is the mystery that our text for today focuses on. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't know where Colossians 1 is, just open to the middle, turn right, keep scrolling, sooner or later you'll get there. I think it's around page 983. And today we're continuing in this series that we're calling Supremacy in the book of Colossians. We'll work our way all the way through the book in the next couple months. And it has been already a very great privilege for me to open the scriptures with you. I look forward to how God continues to use that in our midst. It is a wonderful thing that only God can bring together such a wide variety of people together and form us and shape our thinking and our actions all through his word. Uh, And it's a wonderful thing to do that together. So, are you there? Colossians chapter 1? Yeah? Please follow with me. Starting at verse 24. This is Paul writing, and he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, 
being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so you'll notice that as we read the text, there is a common theme that's reoccurring, that of mystery. And in the Bible, the idea of mystery is a way of explaining God's unfolding revelation of this biggest problem of our existence. Namely, how he is, who he is, and how someone holy and separate could possibly relate to us who are sinful and tarnished. And as we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, we see that How he has chosen to do that is very plainly through the gospel. The good news that God sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who suffered a violent death in substitution for us, paying the penalty for our sins, that we wouldn't have to. Instead, we would have his righteousness and be restored into relationship with God if we put our faith in him. We've seen that this is God's plan in chapter 1. In the second half of chapter 1, we saw that the one who very clearly executes this plan is Jesus. He's able to do it because he is supreme in all things. And so in some ways, when we talk about mystery, the cat is already out of the bag, right? How does God relate to sinners? Through Jesus. We see the core of this mystery already. And yet, And yet, there are still a number of elements of how this happens and its benefits for us that need to be explored. And that is why Paul includes this section of text, I believe. So you notice that first he focuses our attention on sort of how this mystery of God is revealed in the world. Look at some of the details with me, verse 25 and 26. He says that a mystery has been hidden for ages but now is revealed in the word of God and that it needs to be made more fully known. In one sense, there's an ongoing revelation that's happening in this time that we see until the closing of the canon of Scripture. God is inspiring his word through the prophets of the Old Testament, through many of the apostles of the New Testament. He is making this plan known when Scripture is completed, which it has been, This type of revelation ceases. And so, by extension, we live in a very privileged position in history, don't we? The plan of God is made known. We have access to it. And in that sense, we are very blessed. But beyond that, you see that even though these Colossians had the Old Testament scriptures in their possession, they didn't completely understand it. In some ways, it was not fully known to them. And as an aside, that's a wonderful aspect of the Christian life. You will never get bored with God because not one of us fully knows and understands him. 
And the scriptures, again and again and again, as we go back through them, the Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible continues to illumine our minds to the truth of God's word, and we are ever-growing and changing in this sense. So if someone says to me, which many people have over the years, oh, I read the Bible once, and I know what it says, generally speaking, my response is always the same, like, really? You understand God by one reading of the Bible. Surely, you must be a prophet. Because reading the Bible 10 times through, 15 times through, 20 times through, every single time we read it, God shows us something else. He makes himself more fully known. In verses 21, or 29, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul tells us how this mystery is revealed. Through the word of God, but there's a manner in which it's revealed. He says, for this I toil, this being making them mature in Christ. It's related to the mystery. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he says. Toil and struggle and struggle. (laughs) For this I toil and struggle and I struggle. Me for you, I'm struggling that you would know who God is and what he does. And this is, this idea of toiling and struggling, I think is key to understanding the nature of Christian ministry, isn't it? I mean, you need to know this, that when you toil for something, it's hard work to the point of becoming weary. When you struggle for something, another word we might use here would be contend for something. This is another expression to say we're exerting tremendous effort or energy, so much effort that you would find even like in a battle or a contest. It makes me think of a couple of analogies. The other day I was walking down the bike path here in Canfield, walked by Canfield High School, and there were the football players. Talk about toil and struggle and contending for something. All of these young men, one day practicing in 95-degree heat, the next day practicing in 65-degree rain. Multiple practices a day sometimes, I'm sure. And... They all have the goal of showing their coach that they have what it takes, getting in shape so that they can win, exercising their abilities to their fullest extent so much so that they come home and collapse on the couch at the end of the day because they have exerted themselves to the max. They contend. They toil. They struggle. If you want to engage... In God's work, it is often one of toil and struggle. It takes effort, and the battle is long. When I was in college, I used to lead a Bible study at Cook County Juvenile Detention Center. This is downtown Chicago. Cook County uh, at that time was the most violent of the counties, and as a result, the Juvenile Detention Center, a big, very depressing facility, housed uh, those young men and women who were the most severe offenders. 
And so week in and week out, I would go to Cook County Juvenile Detention Center. And let me say, this is not a place you want to be. Every week, I dreaded going. Every week. But every week, I was glad at the end of it that I did, in fact, go. Because you walk in, white walls everywhere, and you get past the first layer of security, and it's, you feel physically the weight of spiritual oppression in that place. And so I would go back to the cell block that I was a part of or that I would work with, and a number of teenage boys around high school age would come, and they would sit uh, down, and we'd study the scriptures together. Week in and week out, we'd open the Bible. They'd ask all kinds of questions, and we'd talk about Jesus. Talk about toil and struggle. <laughs> week in and week out. Sometimes on topic, sometimes on every topic, it seemed like. Week in and week out, dreading to go to this place, always feeling some level of reward that I went and was able to engage with these guys, most of whom were there for different gang-related drugs or violence, until one day, Michael, 16 years old, in juvenile detention center for double murder, convicted of his sin, fearful of his future, getting a glimpse of hope from a loving God, put his faith in Jesus. It took six months from my first time there until Michael put his faith in Christ. And it was toil and struggle for me, and I know that I wasn't the one doing the heavy lifting. God was behind the scenes, working in his heart and his mind as he processed and as he read the scriptures. But it was a toil. And then, for the couple months I had left with him to help him understand what this new faith meant and how then he should live in an environment that he had constant pull and pressure to go back to another way of living. That was toil. And that was struggle. And you need to know that it's the same for you. Same is true for you. In our instant gratification society, we tend to diminish things that take a long and slow work, particularly if they're difficult. But the ministry of the gospel revealing the mystery of God is very often a long and slow and toilsome type of work. It can be hard. But it is incredibly joy inducing as you grow with other people in the middle of this mystery of God and man. And so there's a sense in which Paul is writing to these people and he's saying, this is hard, this is me for you, what we're talking about here is difficult and I want you to know that it's difficult, he says. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. It is the best kind of hard and that is the ministry of this mystery of God. Beyond that, he reveals to them that, verse 24, that not only is it hard, but even causes suffering at times. He says that I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we could probably spend a lot of time talking about what that means, but let me just summarize it to say this. Number one, it is not saying that Christ's afflictions were insufficient 
We know they were sufficient for our salvation. But Jesus promised something for those who would come after him, didn't he? Anybody wants to follow me, they're going to take up their cross and follow me. He promises them that they will be persecuted along the way, that it will be not an easy road of rainbows and lollipops and cotton candy, but that the ministry of the gospel is actually really hard work. And if you want to engage in the work of God, there's a very high likelihood that in some way, shape, or form, you will suffer. And therefore, you continue the legacy of Jesus in this way. Let's turn our attention, though, shall we? He talks about the revealing of this mystery, number one. But then he moves us to the content of this mystery. Look with me at verse 27. He says, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The mystery of God is Christ in you, he says. Now, there are other expressions of mystery in the New Testament. I want to highlight those very briefly. Even later in this passage, he refers to the mystery as just very plainly. The mystery is Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about the mystery of God, and he says the mystery of God is that the Gentiles are included into the family of God. But here, he says, the mystery is Christ in you. And so there's this sense in which he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about God's work, and part of the mystery is this. And part of the mystery is this. And part of the mystery is this. And this is the part I want to focus on today Christ in you. What does that mean? The term in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Him, occurs 242 times in the New Testament. So here he focuses on this specific part of the mystery that we call our union with Christ. That is, when you put your faith in Jesus, he unites himself to you in a very real, spiritual way. It's mysterious in its nature. We can't completely understand it, and yet it's all over the Bible. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are found in him, and he is found in you, united. Let me give you just a little sampling of this. We see a number of occurrences in which Jesus is in those who put faith in him. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus speaking. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In John 14.19, Jesus says, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So there's a sense again and again, and this is just a little bit of a taste, that when you put your faith in Jesus, he is in you. And it has a wide variety of benefits and applications. And even in that last passage in Romans chapter 8, we see that the Spirit of God also lives in us. And these things are probably synonymous in their nature, though he talks about them separately. We also see that throughout the Bible, there's a sense in which the believer is found in Christ. So follow it with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says... For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, says, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. Union. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. So again and again and again, in the New Testament, we see this dynamic that when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him. And it's wonderful, and it's comforting, and it's profound, and it's quite possibly at the core of our understanding of salvation. Now think about the mysterious element of it with me for a second. God. Holy and just who because of his holiness would not allow anyone to see him lest they die. And so throughout all human history we see a couple of people having mere glimpses of part of God, but no one beholding him in his glory because he is too severe for them. God, who only appears to a handful of people. And when he did, the response was almost always the same. They immediately fell on their face in worship to him. 
God, who when the temple was built and the Holy of Holies was constructed, the place where he was said to dwell, would only allow the priests of God to enter into this Holy of Holies on very, very rare occasion. And before they would enter, they'd have to go through a ritual and elaborate purification ceremony, lest they enter into the Holy of Holies, be found impure, and die. So much so that they would tie a rope around the leg of the one who was going into this Holy of Holies in anticipation that he quite possibly could be struck dead and they would want to pull his body out by the rope tied around his leg. God, who is holy and just and severe, much more severe than we often give him credit for, who's perfect and set apart from people in all history. And now, in this most mysterious action of all time, not only does he decide to be present among his people through his son Jesus, But for those who would put their faith in him, he would actually decide to dwell in them. United to them. Never to let them go never to leave them nor forsake them. And this union with a perfect Savior, Paul says, is the hope of our glory. And so what happens when this occurs, when this mystery is realized in the life of a Christian? Well, obviously it's going to have profound results. In our salvation, when you become united to Jesus, he takes your sin, he confers his righteousness, call this imputation of his righteousness, and you now, once far away, are brought near to God. How are you brought near to God? Because Jesus brings you near. He gives his perfection to you. One who was stained like I was, is so distant from perfection, now has perfection, spiritually speaking, and therefore the God of the universe can dwell in me. But beyond that, this mystery applied as profound results. And look with me at verse 28 of chapter 1. Paul says the goal of all of this, the goal of his proclamation of the word, of it making it fully known, of you understanding the mystery, is that we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, purpose, that we may present everyone mature. In Christ. So when you come to know the gospel of Jesus and you understand it, you start to grow and move down this path toward maturity. How do you grow in maturity? Well, you are united to the one who is perfectly mature. How could you do otherwise? And so 
there's a real sense in which this, the main idea of this passage is that knowing and growing in the mystery of God is what leads to Christian maturity. Knowing and growing in the mystery of God, Jesus in you, is the path toward Christian maturity. What does maturity look like for these Colossians? Well, look with me at chapter 2. At the beginning, starting in verse 2, he's talking about the struggle. He's talking about the fact that he's making these things known to them. He's already said, I want to present you mature, that you may be encouraged. Verse 2, that you'd be knit together in love, that you'd have full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, that through Jesus that you would have treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that's maturity, and that you would not be led astray by plausible arguments. How do you know if you're mature? You know, you can be old without being mature. Did you know that? Of course you knew that. Because we've all met people that their maturity doesn't seem to match their age, either in one direction or another. I mean, I remember meeting this guy a couple years ago. I think he was like 65 or something like that, and an avid video gamer. And I was like, there's something that's like the maturity is not quite matching the age here. But you've met people like that. You understand that dynamic where something just doesn't quit, sit quite right. But the same can be true spiritually. You know, you can be old in the faith, but be immature in it. So how do you know if you're mature? J.C. Ryle once said, when I speak of a person growing in grace, I mean this, that his sense of sin is becoming deeper, that his faith Stronger that his hope is brighter, his love more extensive, and his spiritual mindedness more marked. Robert Browning said, Man was made to grow, not stop. John McNaughton said, Maturity begins to grow when you sense your concern for others outweighing your concern for yourself. Chuck Swindoll said, One of the marks of maturity is the ability to disagree without becoming disagreeable. There are lots of different ideas about what maturity looks like for the Christian, but let's stick close to the text. Knowing and growing in the mystery of God leads to maturity. And not one of us here today is fully mature. But the good news is, through faith in Jesus, you are united to the one who is fully mature. And therefore, you can and are even expected to grow in maturity. So let's do a little self-examination. Let me ask you a couple questions related to maturity. These are markers of maturity, we might say. Not comprehensive in any way, but related to this text. Do you consider yourself knit together in love with the other Christians around you? Or is the nature of your relationship with them something less? Do you have full assurance 
and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And if you thought, even for an inkling of saying yes, you're a total liar. Do you understand all of God's mystery? Of course not. And so we continue to read the scriptures. We continue to read theology. Are you able to express these things to others? These are areas of growth and signs of maturity. And when you gain that, you gain wisdom and knowledge, the treasures that found in Jesus. Are you wise? I mean, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. We'll talk more about that next week. But if you do not consider yourself wise, there's certainly room for growth and maturity. And almost any wise person would say how little wisdom they actually have. And hence, another step forward toward maturity. How about the ability to see how the gospel clearly relates and applies to all areas of your life so as not to be diluted by cultural arguments? I mean, these Colossians had all kinds of crazy teachings going around about the cosmos and the creator and the nature of human life and human sexuality and what true spirituality really meant. And you know, there's really nothing new under the sun. Like 15 minutes on Facebook will show you that. But there's all kinds of different ideas out there today about how and who and why you should live your life in a certain way. Are you, are you so rooted in faith in Jesus that you understand how all of these things apply or don't apply to you? What's beneficial and what's not? That's a marker of maturity. Let me conclude with a couple of quick stories for you. Leonard Ravenhill once tells a story about a group of tourists who visited a picturesque village. And they walked through the town past an old man sitting up against a fence. And one of the tourists stopped and asked the old man, were there any great men that were born in this village? To which the man replied, nope, only babies. It was a frothy question, and it received a profound answer because there are no instant heroes, are there? Whether in this world or in the kingdom of God, growth takes time. Spiritual leadership must be earned. Knowing and growing in the mystery of God leads to maturity. And it takes ongoing and intentional engagement. And we've been talking the last couple weeks, and you guys have been talking even longer than that, about how in the life of our church right now, there's a season of great opportunity. But, you know, seasons, and I think that's true. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. But, you know, seasons of great opportunity are only advantageous if you're opportunistic in them, if you take hold of the opportunity that exists. And what is the opportunity? The opportunity is to continue to grow in significant ways forward in our maturity in the mystery of God, in Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, don't let the opportunity pass you by. With a fall season comes new opportunities as well to engage intentionally in maturing activities. 
And I know how it goes. I know probably for some of us here at Old North, we've, we've been coming here for a while. We're part of the church. Maybe you even signed up for membership. Good for you. You're on my plus list. And these opportunities come up to do gospel projects or to do a small group or to serve or to go to prayer meeting. You say, well, I, I, I should do that. I really want to do that. But there's always a good reason not to. I mean, I know. I, I, there's always a good reason not to. We are all very busy people. And so a season goes by, and we'll say, I'm going to get the next one. And then we say, well, this season's really busy. Baseball started, and now I'm going to get the next one. And then another season, and I'm going to get that. And before you know it, there are multiple seasons that have gone by where you are not engaging in intentional maturing activities outside of the Sunday worship. And the result is, without even realizing it, you're getting old, spiritually speaking, but you're not getting mature. Don't be 65-year-olds who play video games, please. Some of us, week in and week out, month in and month out, are engaging in the spiritual, maturing activities in the context of community here at the church. And so we do so, and we're faithful in that, and it's helping form us and shape us. But maybe we don't do that with intentionality with regard to the specific ways that we need to continue to mature. We pick a group because our friend is in it or because we like the teacher or because it's what we've always done. But there might be a way you need to mature that you could focus more specifically on. And there are plenty of us in between. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. Take time before God to consider the ways you need to mature this year. On your sermon note sheet for today, there's a little statement at the bottom of the page. This fall or this season, I want to mature in this way. And to help you remember, the list of these types of maturing things are listed below. It's not comprehensive. You might fill in something else. But I would encourage you to think about the ways, because none of us are there yet. But thankfully, we are united to the one who is. And you know, there's a sense of urgency about this. How do you need to mature? There's a sense of urgency about this. Paul toils and struggles and suffers for their maturity because it's important and he wants it to happen soon. It's a long work. It needs to start now, he's saying. I think of uh, one of John F. Kennedy's favorite anecdotes. It concerned a French general. And after World War I, the general asked his gardener to plant an oak tree in a particular spot on their estate. The gardener noted that the tree that the general had chosen was very slow growing and it would reach maturity some hundred years from now. To which the general replied, well, in that case, there's no time to lose. Please plant it this afternoon. Knowing and growing in the mystery of God is what leads to Christian maturity. And there's no time to lose. So let's start this afternoon. Please pray with me. Father, it is a wonderful thing to be challenged in our maturity. 
to consider the ways that you want to continue to form us and shape us, uh, even the ways that you want us to toil and suffer along the lines of Paul. But so much greater than that is the mystery that you, a holy and righteous and just and loving God, have united yourself to us through your son, Jesus. That you wouldn't leave us far out, abandoned, alone, that you would not only draw near, but that you would unite yourself to us. And there's only one response that we can give, and that is worship. Lord, we need you. And so we worship you now. Amen.